Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. This is going to be my first timely episode as I knew I would cover the series of crimes I'm going to talk about in this episode at some point, but with the news breaking recently in regards to the death of the Unabomber, I figured I might as well cover his crimes now and the investigation as it's kind of fresh on people's minds. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. On May 25, 1978, on the campus of the University of Illinois in Chicago, someone out and about for the day stumbles across a package wrapped in a brown paper bag in a campus parking lot. Thinking the package somehow was left behind by the person mailing it, the package was returned to the sender. The believed sender of the package had no knowledge of the small brown paper-covered box, so he contacted campus police. While attempting to figure out what was inside the package, the crudely crafted bomb exploded, causing minor injuries to the police officer. This would be the first of many bombings attributed to the soon-to-be-infamous bomber-killer named the Unabomber, and the FBI would be on his tail for 18 years. He was always a step or two ahead of them, but an enterprising FBI agent and untested science would prove to be the downfall for this cowardly evil genius. Part 1 of this series is going to break down the crimes in chronological order. The victimology, each bomb, and the target, and the impact of these bombings, attempted bombings, will be discussed. Part 2 of the series will cover the investigation, identification, arrest, and life of the suspect. So the first bomb. The story you heard in the introduction was the bomber's first known attempt to inflict human casualties via a bomb. The package that eventually exploded was found on May 25, 1978 in a parking lot on the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. The package was addressed to E.J. Smith, a professor at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. The sender listed in the return address area was a Professor Buckley Christ at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Now, the research didn't say if the package had postage on it or not. Later, the suspect would use canceled postage stamps or too little postage to make sure the package was returned to the sender. But the research for the first bomb said it was an either-or situation, as in the person who found it either could have given it to the USPS to finish the mailing process, or they could have returned it to the sender. So it's, I'm guessing that the box or the package had enough postage to be mailed to New York, but it was just the choice of the person who found the package to give it to someone at the University of Illinois. And then it was the decision of somebody at the University of Illinois to send it over to nearby Northwestern University instead of putting it back into the mail service to be sent to New York. As a result of this, Buckley Christ, the professor, is going to get the package that he never tried to send, so he's instantly suspicious. Knowing he didn't try to send the package, and likely running through the many scenarios in his head as to why someone would send a package under false pretenses, such as drugs, guns, etc., he alerted the campus police. Officer Terry Marker was on duty that day, and while inspecting or opening the package, 
a pipe bomb inside a wooden box exploded and Marker sustained injuries to his hand. Investigators spoke to both the sender and the intended recipient. Both men denied knowing anything about the package, the bomb, or each other. The only commonality between both men was that they worked at universities. The investigation would dead end as police had no leads as to a suspect, motive, or even who the intended target was. At the end of each bomb, if there's a chance, we're going to break down a few things in the bombing and the investigation here. As I said before, we're going to talk about the incomplete investigation during part two of this, but I'll address things as they come up as we go through here. So uh, the first thing is, I believe, I'm guessing, again, that the package had enough postage on it to get sent to this professor at the Polytechnic Institute. We are going to find out that he targets technological-based targets. So, and I, I guess I didn't read in, in the research what uh, this, this professor, Chris, at Northwestern instructed, but it seems to me that it, it would be intended for, in this case, target that was supposed to be sent to because that person is more likely to open the package, whereas later on we'll discuss some of the times that he potentially wanted the package to, to the target was actually the person receiving the package and to me it's always going to be more suspicious if you get a package returned to you that you never sent in the first place and as a result of that you're less likely to open it or do something with it than if you're just receiving a package from even if the return address isn't something you recognize you're more likely to open the package to try to figure out what's inside it and and potentially then you know who this person is that sent this package to you versus again being the one that is getting a package back that you never sent in the first place that instantly is going to raise more suspicion like it did in the case here where instead of the potentially either target either professor being potentially the target and then the victim it was instead a police officer it was the victim now the other thing i will say is i had a few cases of of potential bombs or what people thought were suspicious packages uh, when I was in law enforcement. And I think it's because the world we live in post 9-11, things are a little bit different. I mean, I was also a security officer and EMT at a, a major amusement park for several summers. And I remember what things were like before 9-11 and after 9-11 when I worked there, where you know, before 9-11, a backpack left on a park bench that somebody walks away from wasn't a very big deal. It happened all the time. And and then after 9-11, suddenly everybody was worried. And then you have different blips in history where people have heightened awareness. And obviously another one would be another case I'll cover at some point with the Boston Marathon bombings. I'm pretty sure if you've ever run a, a long-distance race of any sort... You're going to see, especially near a finish line, there's going to be stuff kind of left everywhere. People are going to uh, leave backpacks laying around as they go get changed or go get some more food or drink of water or whatever it may be. And so people probably wouldn't have thought twice about seeing a backpack, even post 9-11, near the finish line of the Boston Marathon until a bombing happens then of course for years after that people are at a heightened state of awareness as a result but the the point of the story is 
at this point in, in history, at least on universities, campuses, there's really no true threat of of something. And when I was in law enforcement, it was post 9-11. So the threat was there and you always erred on the side of caution. And it didn't matter if it was a briefcase that somebody put on the roof of their car and then drove off. And now this briefcase is laying in, in the middle of a parking lot at a retail center, whatever it may be, you're always going to assume the worst call in the bomb squad to find out that it's not something as opposed to doing what this officer did, which was let's just open the package because I'm going to say it here and this probably isn't a favorable opinion, but there's a lot of lazy police officers out there. And if you can open a package and determine that it's a nothing case, then you don't have to write a report about it. You don't have to call out a bomb squad. You don't have to, it's, it's a lot more work to make something out of nothing that is actually nothing and run that risk of of it being something and just finding out afterwards versus treating it as if it's a bomb from the very beginning which this officer would have had no clue at this point that this is going to be a bomb it's like i said it looks like a package that gets sent in the mail and the sender's just saying i didn't send this and and again this the the person who's claimed to have been the sender that now has possession of this package he's thinking what other reason would somebody ship something in the mail other than uh, without with using a fictitious name or somebody else's name and to be sent here would be in case the package gets intercepted and there's a gun in there, there are drugs in there or something like that, then it can't be linked back to the person actually sending it. So I'm sure the police officer was thinking that's what this is going on here. Somebody's sending some something that they don't want to be traced back to them via this package but they dropped it it got left behind whatever it may be so let's just figure out what this is and be done with it so unfortunately this is going to be bomb number one fortunately in this case there's going to be minor injuries as, as a result of this explosion and something we're going to see as we go through these bombs just to pay attention to and i'll i'll address it at the end too if i don't remember to address it in the middle is like anything else and including myself with these podcasts, when you start out doing something, it's not going to be the best product you can you can put together. So in the case of something as morbid as bomb making, somebody's first few bombs are never going to be as effective in terms of damage and fatal capability as their their bombs they're making later on after they they have more experience. So this bomb is likely smaller less effective not put together as well and as a result we have minor injuries from bomb number one and again at this point there is no nothing else going on either in the area or to indicate that this this was anything more than a one-off somebody was mailing a bomb they just don't know who or why Roughly a year after this bomb goes off, it's now May 9th, 1979, we're back on the Northwestern University campus in Evanston, Illinois, and what was described as a Phillies brand cigar box was left on a table in the school's technical building. Sometime mid-afternoon, a graduate student named John Harris opened this box, triggering a small bomb inside. Harris suffered cuts and burns but was not seriously injured. 
It turned out that the detonator for the bomb had gone off, but luckily for Harris, the bomb failed to fully ignite. In a lot of cases with bombs, it's like anything else explosive, a bullet or anything like that, there needs to be an ignition source that sets off the larger explosive. Especially in a bomb that's designed to go off, you know, you see in the cartoons, you see the dynamite with the fuse running and all that kind of stuff. That's not going to work because if somebody opens something and it lights a fuse, that person has time to get rid of the box and run away from it or whatever they're going to do and it's not going to cause injury. So you need an instantaneous explosion. So what you need to do is have some form of ignition source that when that the initial package is open, it sets off a detonator style device that then triggers the larger explosion, usually of, in this case, compressed gunpowder or something inside of, inside of the bomb itself. And because these are being sent in the mail or being left in places, they, they, have, they have to be transported. There's always a chance that something can get knocked loose and the bomb doesn't function as it's supposed to. And that's, in, the, in this case, what appeared to happen is just that the detonator went off, but either it wasn't put in properly in the first place, the connection between the detonator and the main explosive was too far or had become separated or whatever. So the trigger worked, the detonator worked, but it did not detonate the larger explosive inside. So Harris is lucky. He ends up just getting some cuts and burns from the detonation of the of the detonator for the bomb but the bomb itself does not go off however campus police are now going to know they've got two bombings that are roughly a year apart from each other one under the guise of a mail parcel and the other one being left as abandoned property in a study room but what they still don't have is any form of motive any suspect and anything to tr like to really link the two crimes other than the fact that there was two bombs on the campus about a year apart. On November 14, 1979, a package was dropped off to be mailed out of a Chicago post office destined for Washington, D.C. It was put on a commercial flight from Chicago to D.C. and stored in a mail bag that was put into the baggage area under the plane. An altimeter device attached to the bomb was set to go off when the plane reached a certain altitude. The bomb did explode, causing a small fire with a decent amount of smoke and loss of pressure in the plane. However, the pilot, pilots were able to make an emergency landing, and there was no serious injuries or loss of life, but 12 passengers were treated for smoke inhalation. Now, during the research, I found out that despite taking off from Chicago, the, the emergency landing actually occurred in Washington, D.C., so the research didn't really explain why this was because it's about a just shy of a two-hour flight from Chicago to Washington, D.C. So to me, if the, that bomb went off as the plane was taking off and they first passed the altimeter uh, requirement for the bomb to detonate, in my thoughts, the, that bomb should have detonated much closer to Chicago, which would have caused an emergency landing either in the Chicago area or maybe somewhere near Ohio or somewhere in that rough vicinity. Whereas the fact that it was it went off and then they made an emergency landing in DC, which was their destination, my thought is maybe the bomb failed the first time it passed the altimeter requirement, but because the plane's gonna come back down through the, that altimeter, requirement on its way to make its landing it's possible that during the long drop in altitude as they approach Washington DC that they triggered that altimeter and 
again, it's just speculation. It's just just when I read that when it made emergency landing in D.C., I said, well, that was their final destination. I can't imagine they flew with, with lack of pressure and smoke filling the plane all the way from what it went off during takeoff all the way to D.C. Again, the research wasn't real clear, but that's what I have to assume is that it actually triggered at the end of the flight. And luckily, it was either in a location that was that diminished the amount of damage that was done or the bomb just wasn't large enough to do the damage the, the bomber intended. This is also going on, as I said, it's 1979. It's like November 14th. So this is 10 days after the hostage situation in Iran uh, began. So there's a lot of tension at this point between the U.S. and Iran. And right after this gets reported, because, of course, a bombing on a commercial flight in the U.S. is going to be a big news story. Right after this gets reported, I guess some Iranian students that were part, that believe they're part of this terrorist group took responsibility for it. So at the time, nothing is really linking it back to these bombings at Northwestern University or a domestic terrorism situation. I'm sure the first thought in everybody's mind was was foreign terrorism at this point. Roughly six months later, in June of 1980, we're going to go to the home of the president of United Airlines at the time, who's a man named Percy Wood. And Wood is going to receive a package at his home And this is a few days after he gets this letter from a guy identifying himself as Enoch W. Fisher. This is a typewritten letter that's a couple paragraphs long. And basically it's this letter from this Enoch Fisher guy to Percy Wood stating that in a few days he's going to receive a copy of this book of great importance. And the book is going to be this he identifies in the letter it's ice brothers by sloan wilson and the writer of the letter says something to the effect that he knows mr wood's really busy person but if he has the time he should read this book and he's going to really enjoy it now i did look to see if there was anybody in this time period that would ring a bell to somebody else enoch fisher i didn't know if this would be an actor's name or a politician's name or something along those lines that wood might recognize and have any inkling that this guy knows what he's talking about but everything i could find was that this was a fictitious name so this president of united airlines is going to get this letter from this guy he doesn't know saying you're going to receive this book in a few days when you do please at least open it up and look at it to see if it's something you might want to read a couple days later, he's gonna the uh, Woods gonna receive this package in the mail. He's gonna unwrap the package, and in there's going to be the book Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. And this is gonna kick in his brain, I'm sure. Hey, that this is the book the guy wrote me the letter about, and he said, hey, just open it up and, and at least check it out. And when Wood opens up the book, a bomb that was built into the inside of the book explodes causing severe injuries to Wood's face and his thigh. While gathering and investigating bomb fragments after the explosion, a piece of metal was found with the letters F.C. stamped on it. And it would be after this bombing and the airline bombing that the FBI believes someone is targeting United Airlines. So the FBI's six-letter naming system is how they abbreviate cases that they're working. And in this case, 
UNA was used for United Airlines and BOM for bombing, and it was called Unabomb. And I know I titled this University and Airlines because I had heard and read in other sources that it was always called University and Airlines Bomber, so it was UNA Bomb. But in the research I read this time, it was already UNA Bomb well before they established the link with the universities. But then my guess is it still worked with universities and airlines, UNA, and they just kept that name because it still fit. But it was just interesting to see in the reading that at least a couple sources stated that originally it was somebody they believed targeting United Airlines because of the bomb that went off on the plane and then the bomb that injured the president of the airlines. They believed initially it was just these two bombs only targeting United Airlines. Bomb number five was October 8th, 1981. A student at the University of Utah discovers a large wrapped package in the hallway on campus. He alerts staff and they in turn call the campus police. Chief of police is going to hear the call, respond and decides they need to treat the device as a bomb and calls in the bomb squad. The bomb squad arrives, defuses the device and inside they find a piece of metal stamped FC. And a lot of the times it described, so a pipe bomb is basically a, it's called that because it's a metal piece of piping, the inside's hollow, and that's where the bomber will stuff explosive material into that metal device. And then the ends will have, of the pipe will have teeth on it in which two metal caps will be screwed on to the ends. And now what you have inside there is a contained, unexploded, amount of explosive force that when it gets detonated it wants to expand as a part of the explosion well when it expands it takes that metal and breaks it off into hundreds of, of pieces depending how, how strong the blast is and what type of metal and that kind of stuff is used but what they're finding is that it's the actually the caps that are getting screwed onto the end of this pipe bomb is what's having the fc stamped into it so now they're actually going to have a a complete bomb from what i read in the research they're, they're only ex they're only detonating that somehow diffusing the bomb by hitting it with a small explosive so that the whole bomb doesn't go off is how the research wrote it and then so now they've got all the metal in its place they're able to look at the bomb itself and see that the ends are stamped with this fc bomb number six is going to come on may 5th of 1982 and this is again going to be a uni university related bombing and it's going to be a package that was mailed to professor patrick fisher at penn state university however professor fisher had left penn state two years prior and had since started a job with vanderbilt university so penn state's going to receive this package look at it and say that he doesn't work here anymore but let's just send it to vanderbilt that's where he works now they send it to Vanderbilt University, and by the time it arrives, he's on vacation in Puerto Rico, so his secretary opens the package. It explodes and causes serious injuries to her face and hands. The package had been mailed from Provo, Utah, and the return address was a Professor Leroy Burnson at BYU in Utah. The package was mailed even though it had canceled postage on it, and investigators believe the intended target was Burnson, but somehow the package was mailed and ultimately Smith became the victim. And just as in the case of the first bomb, neither professor knew anything about the package, bomb, or each other. And during the post-explosion investigation, the letters FC are found stamped on the metal. 
Now, this would tie the last three bombs together because each of them had the FC on it, and that was the uh, bombing of the president of Universe, United Airlines, the device that was unexploded on the University of Utah campus, and then this one that injured the secretary at, Penn, uh, sorry, at Vanderbilt University. Now the FBI and police are going to look at this and say, this is no longer just our airlines bomber and the university bomber. They're one and the same. And they're going to, it's going to tie those three bombings together for sure. And it's going to suggest that one bomber is responsible for all six of the bombings to date. This is one of the times during the research that I was confused for multiple reasons. One, it said the investigators believed that the target was Burnson because postage had been canceled on the package. I didn't quite understand how a package with canceled postage made it through the mail in the first place. If that's true that the package had canceled postage, it would make sense that the target of it was not professor at Penn State or eventually where he really worked was Vanderbilt and that it was this other professor at BYU in Utah but then I fall back on the very first bombing with what I said that when this professor gets this package that he never sent and the return address and his name's on the return address unless the bomber's just hoping for curiosity to take over and the guy's just going to open it without questioning what could be in that package he's risking at this point while it's still not a super well-known case i'm sure enough information is out there that people are going to be a little weary of packages and so he's putting a lot of work into making this bomb and sending it out to potentially have it not explode at either of his intended targets so to me i don't know if that canceled postage and the whole article about it potentially targeting the sender in this case was accurate or whether it was always intended for the professor fisher at eventually vanderbilt university but it also goes to show that whoever's targeting these people don't at least don't know a lot about one of the targets in this case because this guy hadn't worked at penn state in two years so if it's somebody that he's had recent contact with or recent knowledge of he's likely going to send it to the correct university in the first place. Again, it's it's almost like the ineptitude of, of the bomber is making things more difficult for the investigation because it's hard to find a motive when you can't tell if the bomber is messing up on purpose to throw you off. But ultimately, they now have these six bombings. They still don't have a true motive in mind, although they're seeing this pattern with universities and airlines but they're just going to have to continue to wait until more attacks occur to try to get more information. So that moves us on to bomb number seven. And this is just a couple months later on July 2nd in 1982. An engineering professor named Diogenes Angelikos at UC Berkeley picks up a handle on what he thought was a piece of engineering equipment that was left on the floor of a staff lounge. The handle was a trigger for a bomb and Angelicos suffers serious injuries to his face, hand, and arm. And I didn't read in the articles I looked at, but I assume that they attributed this either due to the fact it was a university bombing or, or likely there was the FC medal or stamped in the medal as well. It's going to be a, a span here of roughly three years in which 
there's no known bombing attempts or at least successful bombing attempts uh, between 1982 and May 15th of 1985. But three years later on May 15th, 1985, we're back to UC Berkeley and a graduate student named John Hauser finds a three ring binder attached to a file box in a room near the staff lounge where the previous blast in 1982 had occurred. Hauser opens the binder, which triggers an explosive device that's built into the file box. Hauser would lose four fingers, partial vision in his left eye, and serious injuries to his hand as a result of the blast. The victim of bomb number seven, Diogenes Angelicos, was actually working in the room across from where this explosion happened, and he runs in and uses his tie as a tourniquet on Hauser's injured arm and hand. And in this case, it did for sure say metal from the bomb would again be stamped with FC. So now we've got two bombings three years apart from each other, both at UC Berkeley, almost in the same area of the school. And this professor is involved in two of them, one as a victim and then one as rendering aid to the uh, victim of the second one. Bomb number nine is going to occur less than a month after the second bombing at UC Berkeley. So this is going to be on June 3rd of 1985. A package, a brown paper wrapped package with a return address to a fictitious company. So less than a month after the second bombing at UC Berkeley, a brown paper wrapped package with a return address to a fictitious company arrived at the fabrication division of Boeing Airlines on June 13th of 1985. It was addressed to the division, but with no specific person listed as the recipient. The package would be set aside for a while in the inter-office mail area before eventually being sent to the mail room. The employees in the mail room are going to get curious about this package and would carefully cut it open, finding a bomb inside. Since the bomb had not yet exploded, the bomb squad was called and they defused the bomb and found this, a similar device to what they found in Utah with metal plugs on the end of the pipe bomb with FC stamped on them. Bomb number 10 is going to occur later that year on November 15th in 1985. A package is sent from a professor Ralph Kloppenberg at the University of Utah to a psychology professor at the University of Michigan named James McConnell. While Kloppenberg isn't a real person, McConnell is and his assistant, Nick Sweeno, opened up the package and the resulting explosion caused injury to Sweeno's arm and midsection and McConnell, who was in the room at the time, lost part of his hearing. The post-explosion investigation would find metal plugs for the bomb with FC stamped on them and the same postage stamps for this package as the one sent to the Boeing Fabrication Division. So if police have any question at this point, which they shouldn't because everything's getting stamped with this FC, it's... It's continuing to, or this bomber's continuing to go after uh, airlines and universities uh, with his bombs. Bomb number 11 occurred on December 11th, 1985. A man named Hugh Scruton was moving what looked like some wood he found in the parking lot behind his computer store in Sacramento, California. The wooden structure was a bomb, and when the bomb exploded, it sent metal from the explosion into Scruton's heart, killing him. This would be the first fatality associated with the investigation, and metal was found stamped with FC during the post-explosion investigation. Now, after this fatal bombing, there's going to be no bombings in 1986. And I have to imagine investigators are going to start to wonder if 
the bomber found out that he had now killed somebody and this was going to put an end to the madman spree. But on February 20th, 1987, Gary Wright, vice president of CAAMS Incorporated, which is a computer company in Salt Lake City, Utah, was seriously injured in a blast that mirrored the fatal Sacramento bombing. The victim had moved a package he found in the parking lot, causing it to detonate. Shortly before the explosion, a secretary at the business had watched a man with a mustache wearing some type of a hooded sweatshirt and aviator-style sunglasses place something by the car. She described the items as looking like two pieces of wood nailed together. This would later be determined to be the explosive device that injured Gary Wright. The composite sketch of the bomber that resulted from this eyewitness would become the famous mustache and hooded man with aviator glasses that everyone now knows as the suspect well before he was identified. Bombs 13 and 14 kind of go together. They believe to have been sent the same day and mailed to two different targets. They believe they were sent sometime around June 17th of 1993. The first package was in a wooden box inside of a padded envelope that was received on June 22nd. The package originated in Sacramento and was mailed to Tiburon, California to the residence of Dr. Charles Epstein. Dr. Epstein worked as a geneticist at the University of California, San Francisco. The return address was listed as James Hill with Cal State University, Sacramento. Epstein's daughter retrieves the package, but thankfully she doesn't open it. However, Epstein does, and it explodes and causes severe injuries to his arm, abdomen, and he loses several fingers. The second package was mailed to a Dr. Dave Galertner, a professor of computer science at Yale. The package arrives on June 23rd with a return address listing Mary Jane Lee of the Cal State University Computer Science Department. Dr. Galertner opens the package and the explosion results in loss of vision in one eye, loss of hearing in one ear, and the loss of part of his right hand. Just after the second bombing, a call to the VA switchboard reports a mail caller saying, you're next. While investigating the second bombing, officials learn the second bombing victim's brother worked at the VA hospital as a geneticist. While investigators looked into any ties between the bombings, the New York Times receives a letter mailed from Sacramento from an anarchist group calling themselves FC, claiming responsibility for the bombings and giving them a nine-digit number in social security number format to verify future communication. Now, this is the first time I've seen this in any cases I've investigated uh, or talked about on the show. There's a lot of times where a national story such as this, and we've already talked about the Iranian students claiming responsibility for this, but... A lot of the times when something goes national and makes as big of a splash as this story did, you're going to have people with either mental health illness or mental health issues or wanting to be famous or whatever it may be that are going to later claim to be responsible for these bombings or sending letters. And in the case of uh, the Zodiac, which is another case I'll do if I branch off and do an unsolved podcast but in the case of the zodiac killer there was a uh, time in which famous attorney went on to a late night talk show and they invited the zodiac killer to call in and a man claiming to be the zodiac killer called in and said he killed people because he was sick and, and different things and eventually it was determined these calls came from a mental asylum and it was a deranged patient that 
was not out and free to have committed the killing, so he could not have been the Zodiac. So a lot of the times you're going to have people claiming to be responsible for these things. And so this is the first that I actually read where the person responsible is actually putting together some type of a code, in this case, this nine-digit number in Social Security format to verify future communications. So not only are they providing a nine-digit number just in case a nine-digit number is leaked to the general public, it's going to be a nine-digit number in a certain format that only the bomber is going to know. Now, the 15th bomb is a package bomb that exploded on December 10th, 1994, killing Thomas Moser, who was a an executive vice president of an advertising firm. The return address on the package listed an H.C. Wickle at San Francisco State University, and this was another use of a fictitious sender by the suspect. And bomb number 16. On April 24, 1995, a package bomb was received at the California Forestry Association. The package was addressed to former president of the CFA, William Dennison. His successor, Gilbert Murray, opens the package, which explodes and kills Murray. In the days surrounding the second fatal bombing, several people received letters from FC, including the New York Times, also bomb victim number 18, David Gelertner, also an MIT professor of genetics, and a doctor at New England Biolabs. All the letters have warnings about the dangers of technology. The editor of the New York Times, Warren Hodge, who had received the original letter from FC, the one with the coded identifier, receives a personal letter around this time detailing the reasons for the bombings. So far, all the bombings seem to have a technological or educational link. However, the attack on the advertising executive was one of the outliers and FC explained this man was targeted because his firm had done work with Exxon Valdez to clean up their public image after the environmental disaster involving their oil spill in 1989. The author of the letter claims that future attacks will stop if the New York Times agrees to run a copy of a manuscript belonging to FC. On June 27, 1995, Jerry Roberts, the editor of the San Francisco Examiner, receives a letter claiming to be from FC stating they plan to blow up an airliner flying out of LAX during the next six days. Also on this day, a letter is received by the editor at the Washington Post. This letter again states it would stop attacks if the Post agreed to run the manuscript. The following day on June 28, 1995, a copy of the manuscript is sent to the New York Times using the nine number identifier in appropriate format from before. The manuscript is 65 pages long. That same day, Scientific American receives a letter from the terrorist group FC referencing an article they published in 1993 about particle accelerators. FC discussed the article and the negative impact of technology on society. Now this is again where I'll reference that nine digit number some people will try to take advantage of a situation like this and some person who's not in their right mind might see an opportunity to get a hold of some newspapers and, and this is 1995 so it's more newspapers whereas now it would likely be cable news or internet news but they want to get their quote-unquote manuscript out to the world to see so they'll piggyback on somebody else's crimes to do this Maybe after not receiving some responses from some of these newspapers and what the suspect went back to his letter to the New York Times with that nine-digit identifier, sending the manuscript to them, 
so that they would see that this, in fact, is a manuscript coming from the person who's claimed responsibility early on, earlier on for these bombings. On June 29, 1995, Penthouse Magazine publisher Bob Guccion receives a letter from FC. Penthouse had offered FC to run his manuscript in their magazine. The suspect, however, said that there were conditions about Penthouse running it, and one of those conditions with it was that it also had to run in a more reputable source like the Washington Post or New York Times. If you're not familiar, Penthouse was an adult-only magazine aimed at adults with sexual images and stories, and so this FC is the suspect's not going to be happy about his manuscript going out just with Penthouse magazine because he's afraid not many people are going to see it, and the people that are going to see it are likely not the people he's trying to trying to get through to. So he is going to try to use, though, the influence of Penthouse magazine to get Washington Post and New York Times to run his manuscript. However, he's going to, in this letter, identify FC as meaning Freedom Club. On June 30th, 1995, a social psychologist at UC Berkeley named Tom Tyler receives a letter from FC and a copy of the manuscript. The letter poses questions to Tyler about technology's effect on society, and it references some statements Tyler made when he was interviewed for a newspaper article. Even though those are the, all this is occurring between June 27th and June 30th, it's, it's very possible that the suspect sent out all these letters in kind of one mass mailing, and they're just arriving at different dates or being opened after having arrived on a certain date a few days later. So then there's going to be a break until September 19th of 1995. The New York Times and the Washington Post decided to share the cost of running the manuscript at the behest of the U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno and the FBI. They believe it could lead to someone identifying who the bomber or group of bombers is. The Washington Post runs an entire day's worth of newspaper for just the manuscript, but Apparently, they were able to also do a separate section for the day, so they weren't giving up all of their news articles that day, just most of them. However, for some reason, the New York Times could not do a separate section, but they agreed to assist by sharing the cost because this manuscript's not going to have ads in it. It's just going to be literally 65 pages of this manuscript on newspaper print. So it's not going to be 65 pages once it hits a newspaper, but it's going to be still a large number of of pages and they're not going to have ads in there so the the Washington Post is taking a big hit on ad money these day uh, for for that day but the New York Times agrees to help cover some of that loss it would be the decision to run the manuscript that eventually would bring an end to the nearly 20 year long deadly bombing spree and in the next episode I'll break down what goes on behind the scenes of the investigation so I'm not going to get to that now um, but I'll also talk about the suspect and and who he was and how his life contributed to the crimes but before we get to that next episode the one thing i mentioned that we were going to talk about in this episode is the victimology so victimology is what it sounds like it's the study of the victims we mentioned in here that police are struggling to find a motive there's not until these letters start coming in later there's not a lot of information literally it's just bombs being sent out and exploding and injuring people now there's a commonality between these people that it's either educational or technology uh, technological or a combination of both for the most part and it's almost always 
what would be considered the big wigs or executives that are being targeted. So the victimology is going to come into play on this in terms of that's all police really have early on. And when I say police, I mean FBI, law enforcement, everything. But that's all they have early on to try to identify a lot that's going on here. In a murder case, victimology is a huge deal because since the victim can no longer tell the police anything directly because they have been murdered, they need to look at that victim's life and it includes everything, their job, their social structure, things that are going on in their life to see if you can identify a suspect based off of the victimology. So in cases of serial killers like the Green River killer who we'll cover at some point down the road here, his the victimology, his victims were almost all, if not all, prostitutes that he would pick up and then he would kill and dump their bodies. And the victimology of a prostitute is one that lives a very high-risk lifestyle. They are getting into cars with strangers. They are going to secluded locations with people they don't know as a part of their job, which puts them inherently at more risk than a secretary at a large company that is going in every day to an office filled with people, surrounded by people they know, Even if it's people they don't know, they're still surrounded by people they do know. So a lot of times when you look at the victims themselves, especially when you have, in this case, 16 different bombings or attempted bombings, each one with an intended victim or a victim, what those victims share is going to kind of create this story until the suspect starts writing to these newspapers and it's a combination of, of the victimology and just the actions themselves that FBI profilers are going to use to to develop a potential profile of who this person is. Because bombings are very antisocial, impersonal crimes, especially these types of male bombings. Because you're not seeing the victim when they, there's there's no pleasure from seeing your victim die. And this that's going to sound morbid, but... When somebody kills people through strangulation, a lot of times afterwards, these suspects will say they wanted to watch the life drain out of the person's eyes in front of them. And that that was a, a motivating factor for the homicide. Whereas in these cases, it's in some cases, it's drop and forget. It's, it's leave something somewhere and whoever finds it is going to be your next victim. Uh, other times, it's it, at least there's some directionality to it. It's being mailed to a certain person or a return address of a certain person. But in most of these cases, it's secretaries or students, student aides that are being injured in these blasts, not the intended target themselves, which I did find interesting. And I thought maybe that was a reason why eventually he does send, like in the case of the president of United Airlines, not only does he send the letter in advance telling him he needs to open the book because he probably assumes if he just sends this guy a book with no knowledge of who this guy is, the guy might not even open the book. He might open the package, see it's a book, slide into a bookshelf somewhere or a bookcase or just leave it on a table for days on end. He wants to send that letter to have him open the book. But secondly, he's sending it to his house, so there isn't going to be a secretary that opens his package. He's, there's not going to be a, a middle person. Now, in that case, you know, I guess you could have targeted 
or accidentally targeted if the guy had a child or a spouse or somebody gathering the mail for him, I guess. But again, these are not crimes you have a whole lot of control over. It's not necessarily the terror to that individual victim. It's the terror that anybody can be a victim is what this guy is working off of. So again, that's going to be part of the investigation. There's going to be other parts when we talk about it tomorrow, but it just one of the reasons I went through each bombing crime by crime was to try to break it down so that you, you can see, listen to that pattern develop of who he's targeting, how he's targeting it. And also, I, I remember we, I said I was going to mention partway through, but for sure at the end, that if you start in the beginning, the very first police officer that's injured, then you have you know minor injuries, and then you've got a device that doesn't fully detonate. It's just the detonator that goes off, but not the main explosive. And he just causes some minor injuries to that grad student to the point where near the end, his last two are fatal bombings. So he's perfected this evil craft of his, of this bomb making. He went from probably not knowing much, making some really weak and rudimentary bombs to likely making some much more sophisticated and deadly style bombs by the end there. And police are going to notice this. And again, when I say police, I mean FBI and everybody else. They're going to notice this. And this is going to really drive this investigation, which is part of why they're going to release that manuscript. And we'll talk about it in part two tomorrow, the investigation. But they have to be concerned because originally, not that it's not concerning that bombs are going out in the mail, but originally these are pretty weak and ineffective bombs. But near the end here, he's now killed three people with his bombs in a quote-unquote short amount of time. Uh, over the grand scheme of things so it's almost like at this point he can kill at will with these bombs and they need to shut it down so we'll talk about more of the investigation and the suspect in episode two but i want to thank you guys for listening and stay tuned for the future episodes including part two of this series which i will finish up and hopefully get uploaded tomorrow so appreciate it guys if you need to get in contact with me uh, reach out to me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com. Support the Patreon if you can and check out the Facebook page. Other than that, hope you guys have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.